calling all lovers of mystery and fans of a good story. If you haven't already heard me talk about June's journey, you're in for a treat. It's time to don your detective hat in this free hidden object mobile game that delves into the captivating journey of June Parker, a self-proclaimed detective on a quest to unravel the mystery surrounding her sister's untimely death. In June's journey, you get to play as June, deciphering clues and unveiling secret plots within thousands of beautifully illustrated scenes. And did I mention it's set in the glitzy 1920s? New chapters are added weekly, so you will never run out of new thrills to uncover, and you can also personalize and decorate your very own Orchid Island where the story takes place. How sharp are your detective skills? Find out when you download June's Journey on your Android or iOS device, or play online via Facebook games. Your detective journey awaits. Hey there, it's Rachel Ballinger, and I am thrilled to invite you to Rachel Uncensored, my podcast where I get real with my friends and celebrity guests, where we talk about all sorts of topics. From personal stories to hot button issues, we cover it all. New episodes drop every Wednesday, so make sure you tune in on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Trust me, you won't want to miss out on the fun and candid conversations we have here on Rachel Uncensored. Lightspeed. Hello, and welcome to the Lightspeed Magazine Story Podcast. I'm your host, Jim Freund. Lightspeed Magazine is edited by John Joseph Adams, and our podcast is produced by Skyboat Media. Today's story is The Court Magician by Sarah Pinsker, narrated by Stefan Rutnicki. This story is copyright 2018. Sarah Pinsker is the author of the novelette Enjoy Knowing the Abyss Behind, winner of the 2014 Sturgeon Award and 2013 Nebula Award, and A Stretch of Highway Two Lanes Wide, which was a 2014 Nebula finalist. Her fiction has appeared in Asimov's Strange Horizons, Fantasy and Science Fiction, and Lightspeed, as well as anthologies including Long Hidden, Fierce Family, and The Future Embodied. She is also a singer-songwriter and has toured nationally behind three albums with a fourth forthcoming. In the best of all timelines, she lives with her wife and dog in Baltimore, Maryland. She can be found online at sarahpinsker.com and on Twitter at S-A-R-A-H-P-I-N-S-K-E-R. And so, it's time to buckle up. We're going to light speed. The Court Magician by Sarah Pinsker The Boy Who Will Become Court Magician The boy who will become court magician this time is not a cruel child, not like the last one, or the one before her. He never stole money from Blind Carol's Cup, or thrashed a smaller child for sweets, or kicked a dog. This boy is a market rat which sets him apart from the last several, all from high-born or merchant families. This isn't about lineage or even talent. He watches the street magicians every day with a hunger in his eyes that says he knows he could do what they do. He contemplates the tawdry illusions of the market square with more intensity than most until he is marked for us by his own curiosity, 
even then, even when he wanders booth to booth and corner to corner every day for a month, begging to learn, we don't take him. At our behest, the great Greta takes him under her tutelage. She demonstrates the first sleight of hand. If he's disappointed to learn that her tricks aren't magic at all, he hides it well. When he returns to her the next day, it is clear he has practiced through the night. His eyes are marked by dark circles, his step lags, but he can do the trick she taught him, can do it as smoothly as she can, though admittedly she is not as great as she once was. He learns all her tricks, then begins to develop his own. He's a smart child, understands intuitively that the trick is not enough, that the illusion is in what is said and what isn't said, the patter, the posture, the distractions with which he draws the mark's attention from what he is actually doing. He gives himself a name for the first time, a magician's name, because he sees how that too is part of the act. When he leaves Greta to set out on his own, the only space granted to him is near the abattoir, a corner that had long gone unclaimed. Greta's crowd follows him, despite the stench and screams. Most of his routine is composed of street illusions, but there is one that seems impossible. He calls it the sleeper's lament. It takes me five weeks to figure out what he is doing in the trick. That's when we are sure he is the one. Would you like to learn real magic? I send a palace guard to ask my question, dressed in her own clothes rather than her livery. The boy snorts. There's no such thing. He has unraveled every illusion of every magician in the marketplace. None of them will speak with him because of it. He's been beaten twice on his way to his newly rented room and robbed neither time. He's right to be suspicious. She leans over and whispers the key to the boy's own trick in his ear, as I bade her do. As she bends, she lets my old diary fall from her pocket, revealing a glimpse of a trick he has never seen before, the gilded hand. He hands it back to her, and she thanks him for its safe return. By now he's practiced at hiding his emotions, but I know what's at war within him. He doesn't believe my promise of real magic, but the gilded hand has already captivated him. He's already working it out as he pockets the coins that have accumulated in his dusty cap, places the cap upon his head, and follows her out of the marketplace. The palace? he asks, as we all near the servant's gate. I thought you were from the guild. I whisper to my emissary, and she repeats my words. The guild is for magicians who feel the need to compete with each other. The palace trains magicians who feel compelled to compete against themselves. It's perhaps the truest thing I'll ever tell him. He sees only the guard. The Young Man Who Will Become Court Magician Alone, except for the visits of his new tutor, he masters the complex illusions he has shown. He builds the gilded hand in our workshop from only the glimpse I had let him see, 
then an entire gilded man of his own devising. Still tricks. I was promised real magic, he complains. You didn't believe in it, the tutor says. Show me something that seems like real magic, then. When he utters those words, when he proves his hunger again, he is rewarded. His hands are bound in the unbreakable knot, and he is left to unbind them. His tutor demonstrates the breath of flowers, the freestanding bridge. He practices those until he figures out the illusions underpinning them. More trickery, he says. Is magic only a trick I haven't figured out yet? He has to ask seven times. That is the rule. Only when he has asked for the seventh time, only then is he told, if he is taught the true word, he has no choice but this path. He will not likely return to the streets, nor make a life in the theaters entertaining the gentleborn. Does he want this? Others have walked away at this point. They choose the stage, the street, the accolades they will get for performing tricks that are slightly more than tricks. This young man is hungry. The power is more valuable to him than the money or the fame. He stays. There is a word, his tutor tells him, a word that you have the control to utter. It makes problems disappear. Problems? The regent's problems. There is also a price which you will pay personally. May I ask what it is? No. He pauses, considers. Others have refused at this point. He does not. What is the difference between a court magician and a street or stage magician? A court magician is a person who makes problems disappear. That is what he is taught. There is no way to utter the word in practice. I leave it for him on paper. Tell him it is his alone to use now. Remind him again, there is a cost. He studies the word for long hours, then tears the page into strips and eats them. On the day he agrees to wield the word, the regent touches scepter to shoulder and personally shows him to his new chambers. All of this is yours now, the regent says. The regent's words are careful, but the young court magician doesn't understand why. His new chambers are nicer than any place he has ever been. Later, when he sees how the regent lives, he will understand that his own rooms are not opulent by the standards of those born to luxury, but at this moment, as he touches velvet for the first time, and silk, as he lays his head on his first pillow atop a feather bed, he thinks for a moment that he is lucky. He is not. The Young Man Who Is Court Magician The first time he says the word, he loses a finger, the smallest finger of his left hand. Loses because it is there, and then it is not. No blood, no pain sleight of hand. His attention had been on the word he was uttering, on the intention behind it, and the problem the regent had asked him to erase. The problem, as relayed to him, 
a woman had taken to chanting names from beyond the castle wall, close enough to be heard through the regent's window. The court magician concentrates only on erasing the chanting from existence, concentrates on silence, on an absence of litany. He closes his eyes and utters the word. When he looks at his left hand again, he is surprised to see it has three fingers and a thumb, and smooth skin where the smallest finger should have been, as if it had never existed. He marches down to the subterranean room where he'd learned his craft. The tutors are no longer there, so he asks his question to the walls. Is this to be the cost every time? Is this what you meant? I only have so many fingers. I don't answer. He returns to his chambers, disconcerted, perplexed. He replays the moment again and again in his mind, unsure if he had made a mistake in his magic or even if it worked. He doesn't sleep that night, running the fingers of his right hand again and again over his left. The regent is pleased. The court magician has done his job well. The chanting has stopped, the court magician asks, right hand touching left. He instinctively knows not to tell the regent the price he paid. Our sleep was not disturbed last night. The woman is gone. The regent shrugs. The problem is gone. The young man mulls this over when he returns to his own chambers. As I said, he had not been a cruel child. He is stricken now, unsure of whether his magic has silenced the woman or erased her entirely. While he had tricks to puzzle over, he didn't notice his isolation, but now he does. "'Who was the woman beyond the wall?' he asks the fleeing chambermaid. "'What were the names she recited?' he asks the guards at the servant's gate, who do not answer. When he tries to walk past them, they let him. He makes it only a few feet before he turns around again of his own accord. He roams the palace and its grounds discovers hidden passageways, apothecaries, libraries. He spends hours pulling books from shelves, but finds nothing to explain his own situation. He discovers a kitchen. Am I a prisoner, then? The cooks and sculleries stare at him stone-faced until he backs out of the room. He sits alone in his chambers, wonders, as all court magicians do after their first act of true magic, if he should run away. I watch him closely as he goes through this motion. I've seen it before. He paces, talks to himself, weeps into his silk pillow. Is this his life now? Is it so wrong to want this? Is the cost worth it? What happened to the woman? And then, as most do, he decides to stay. He likes the silk pillow, the regular meals, the woman was a nuisance. It was her fault for disturbing the regent. She brought it on herself. In this way, he unburdens himself enough to sleep. The Man Who Is Court Magician By the time he has been at court for ten years, the court magician has lost three fingers, two toes, eight teeth, his favorite shoes, all memories of his mother except the knowledge she existed, his cat and his household maid. 
He understands now why nobody in the kitchen would utter a word when he approached them. The fingers are in some ways the worst part. Without them he struggles to do the sleight-of-hand tricks that pass the time, and to wield the tools that allow him to create new illusions for his own amusement. He tries not to think about the household maid, Tria, with whom he had fallen in love. She had known better than to speak with him, and he had thought she would be safe from him if he didn't advance on her. He was mistaken. The mere fact that he valued her was enough. After that, he left his rooms when the maids came, and turned his face to the corner when his meals were brought. The pages who summon him to the regent's court make their announcements from behind his closed door and are gone by the time he opens it. He considers himself lucky, still, in a way. The regent is rarely frivolous. Months pass between the regent's requests, years sometimes. A difficult statute, a rebellious province, a potential usurper, all disappeared before they can cause problems. There have been no wars in his lifetime. He tells himself his body bears the cost of peace so others are spared. For a while, this serves to console him. The size of the problem varies, but the word is the same. The size of the problem varies, but the cost does not correspond. The cost is always someone or something important to the magician, a gap in his life that only he knows about. He recites them sometimes, the things he has lost, a litany. He begins to resent the regent. Why sacrifice himself for the sake of a person who would not do the same for him, who never remarks on the changes, who never remarks on the changes in his appearance? The resentment itself is a curse. There is no risk of the regent disappearing. That is not the price. That is not how this magic works. He takes a new tactic. He loves. He walks through his chambers, flooding himself with love for objects he never cared for before, hoping they'll be taken instead of his fingers. How I adore this chair, he tells himself. This is the finest chair I have ever sat in. Its cushion is the perfect shape. Or, how have I never noticed this portrait before? The woman in this portrait is surely the greatest beauty I have ever seen. And how fine an artist to capture her likeness. His reasoning is good, but this is a double-edged sword. He convinces himself of his love for the chair. When it disappears... He feels he will never have a proper place to sit again. When the portrait disappears, he weeps for three losses, the portrait, the woman, and the artist, though he doesn't know who they are or if they are yet living. He thinks he may be going mad. And yet he appears in the regent's court when called. He listens to the description of the regent's latest vexation. He runs his tongue over the places his teeth had been, a new ritual to join the older ones, touches the absences on his left hand with the absence on his right, looks around his chambers to catalogue the items that remain, utters the word, the cursed word, 
the word that is more powerful than any other, more demanding, more cruel. He keeps his eyes open, trying, as always, to see the sleight of hand behind the power. More than anything, he wants to understand how this works, to make it less than magic. He craves that moment where the trick behind the thing is revealed to him, where it can be stripped of power and made ordinary. He blinks, only a blink. But when he opens his eyes, his field of vision is altered. He has lost his right eye. The mirror shows a smoothness where it had been, no socket, as if it never existed. He doesn't weep. He tries to love the regent as hard as he can, as hard as he loved his chair, his maid, his eye, his teeth, his fingers, his toes, the memories he knows he has lost. He draws pictures of the regent, masturbates over them, sends love letters that I intercept. The magic isn't fooled. All of this has happened before. I watch his familiar descent. The fingers, the toes, the hand, the arm. All unnecessary to his duty, though he does weep when he can no longer perform a simple card trick. He loses the memory of how the trick is performed before the last fingers. His hearing is still acute. No matter what else he loses, the magic will never take his ability to hear the regent's problem. It will never take his tongue, which he needs to utter the word, or the remaining teeth necessary to the utterance. If someone were to tell him these things, it would not be a reassurance. For this one, the breaking point is not a person, not some maid he is fixated upon, not the memory of a childhood love, nor the slights of hand. For this one, the breaking point is the day he utters the word to disappear another woman calling up from beyond the wall. The names, the regent says. How am I supposed to sleep when she's reciting names under my window? Is it the same woman from years ago, the magician asks. If she can return, perhaps the word is misdirection after all. If she can find her voice again, perhaps nothing is lost for good. How should I know? It's a woman with a list and a grievance. The magician tests his mouth, his remaining arm, with its two fingers and thumb. He loses nothing, he thinks. But when he goes to bed that night, he realizes his pillow is gone. It's a little thing. He could request another pillow in the morning, but somehow this matters. He feels sorry for himself. If he thinks about the people he has disappeared, the women outside the wall, the first woman, the entire population of the northeastern mountain province, he would collapse into dust. I can tell he's done before he can. I'm watching him, as always, and I know, as I've known before. He cries himself out on his bed. Why? he asks this time. He has always asked how before. Then, because I know he will never utter the word again, I speak to him directly for the first time. I whisper to him the secret, 
that it is powered by the unquenched desire to know what powers it, at whatever the cost. Only these children, these hungry youths, can wield it, and we wield them for the brief time they allow us. This one longer than most. His desire to lay things bare was exceptional, even if he stopped short of where I did. I, no more than a whisper in a willing ear. I wait to see what he will do. Return to the marketplace to join blind Carol and Greta and the other lesser magicians, the ones we pay to alert us when a new child lingers to watch, ask to stay and teach his successor, as his tutor did. He doesn't consider those options, and I remember again that I had once been struck by his lack of cruelty. He leaves through the servant's gate, taking nothing with him. I listen for weeks for him to take up the mourner's litany, as some have done before him. But I should have known that wouldn't be his path either. His list of names is too short. If I had to guess, I would say he went looking for the things he lost, the things he banished, the pieces of himself he'd chipped off in service of someone else's problems, the place to which teeth and fingers and problems and provinces and maids and mourners and pillows all disappear. There was a trick, he thinks. There is always a trick. Welcome back. You have been listening to Stefan Rodnicki reading The Court Magician by Sarah Pinsker. We hope you enjoyed it. If so, please help spread the word by leaving a review or rating at iTunes or the social media venue of your choice. Our sponsor this month is Houghton Mifflin Harcourt, reminding you of this month's featured book, The Night Market, by Jonathan Moore. Our editor is John Joseph Adams, and this podcast is copyright 2018 by Lightspeed Magazine. If you are not already a subscriber to our Hugo Award-winning journal, check out our many options at lightspeedmagazine.com slash subscribe. Skyboat Media, the most respected independent audio production team on the West Coast, produces the stories for this podcast. They are headed by the Audi and Grammy Award-winning narrators Stefan Rudnicki and Gabrielle DeCure. Be sure to check out their website at skyboatmedia.com. Post-production was by yours truly. Our music and sound logos were composed and performed by Jack Kincaid. Thanks for listening. That's all for now. See you on the Bitstream. I'm Jim Freund wishing you cheers from all of us at Lightspeed. Hey there, this is Justin Bartha. I made a funny new podcast, King of the Egg Cream. It has the greatest cast in the history of podcasts with actors like Louis Black. I'm torn by my feelings for two women. Bobby Cannavale. You can eat it, or if someone hits you, you can put it on your cut. 
Melanie Linsky. I wonder what these marvelous things are that look just like boiled chicken feet. Jason Ritter. I can break things and pick locks and kill people. Michael Stuhlbarg. The whole point is to inspire people that they should make themselves better. Ari Grainer. No, don't whet its appetite. What are you, an idiot? Me, Justin Bartha. That's not just any egg cream, that's a Lemke's special. And all narrated by the hilarious Richard Kind. This is the story of Harry Dalowitz and how he rose from nothing to become New York's King of the Egg Cream. So if you like funny true stories, come listen to King of the Egg Cream, available wherever you get your podcasts.